the pandemic is a war on a virus. Before that, there was the war on terror. Before that, there was the war on drugs. Uh, and what do all these uh, wars have in common? All three are fighting in response to an existing problem, not the root cause of the problem itself, okay? All three created a reason for the United States government to subcontract trillions of dollars of taxpayer money to a select number of influential corporations and individuals. Welcome to the New Wave Podcast, where we dive headfirst into Web3, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So, jump in. The water is warm, and the tide is rising. Hey there! Did you know that this isn't a podcast you're listening to? Okay, let me be more clear. This isn't just a podcast you're listening to. See, by listening to this show, you're actually part of the New Wave community. And because of that, I really want to meet you, IRL, in real life. Wouldn't it be nice to spend some time in a beautiful location, maybe a mansion by the sea with a chef-catered dinner, knowledgeable friends who really want to help you, a cello playing in the background, and, you know, an overall great ambiance. Doesn't that sound gorgeous? Well, we just created that at a recent New Wave dinner in LA, and I want you to be part of the next one. See, these dinner experiences are for entrepreneurs, career climbers, and creatives who want to build friendships with each other in real time, in real life, not just spending time chatting on the internet. We want to actually feel each other's presence, and we spend time together uh, bringing our business problems, bringing our half-baked ideas, bringing our creative questions. Then over a, a wonderfully catered meal, we work together as a group to help, help each other untie these knots and dial in our focus. And afterwards, we go and relax. We take a dip in a pool. I always got a place with a pool or a jacuzzi, have some drinks. We do a little bit of partying. And you will leave this experience with connections and brand new ideas and budding relationships. And you might even find your next co-founder or your next investor sitting right next to you. But more importantly, you are going to leave with a jumping off point, some momentum to go into this next phase of your life, this next chapter, uh, some new ideas that you didn't have before, something that's been enhanced that you know you have confidence in. Now you're gonna build that inner momentum. And that's what's so important. And of course, when you're there, I'm also going to bless you with some new wave merch. If you've been looking at my photos, I'm constantly making new merch and new gear just to show the community that, you know, we got something special going here. So make sure you check out the next new wave dinner experience. Now we're doing these all over the country and potentially all over the world. We did our first one in LA. We're going to be doing them in Austin, New York, Miami, and a few other cities. Plus most likely we're going to hit the UK or Europe. So make sure you go to newwaveentrepreneur.com to check out all the dates. We'll have them all listed there. And of course, you can uh, you can sign up. There's going to be about 10 to 12 people per location. So this isn't a massive um, conference. This is a 10 to 12 person event. And that means that it's purposely designed for you to meet people, to engage with them, and to have a whole hell of a lot of fun. So make sure you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com to get all the dates and locations for the next one. I, I believe... Depending on when you're listening to this, the next one is in Austin this summer, and it'll be all over the country. So sign up, and now let's get to the episode. Ah, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the New Wave Podcast. Daniel DiPiazza checking in with you here. So happy to have you. I got a whopper to share with you today. This is a long one. I looked at this one today and I said, oh boy, are they ready for this? I don't know. If I don't know if they're ready. And then I was talking to Prince, who's doing the engineering, and I was like, I don't know, do we want to go this deep? There's some conspiracy stuff here. There's some you know, there's just a lot of detail. And he's like, well, the first one that you did was pretty good. I liked that. I was learning some stuff. I thought, okay, fine. We'll do it. We're going to do it. So today we're talking about how the media and the government manufacture slash manufactured 
the pandemic for profit and control. And I know that you're listening to this in May. This is something that I originally wrote in January. So in terms of a disconnect, there's only that disconnect. That's yes, it's four or five months since this was originally written, but I'm going to give current commentary as I'm reading through what was first an essay. And I'm going to give my thoughts on the current state of things as I read through it. But my opinion hasn't changed from this. I mean, right now, the focus uh, is mostly just April, you know, so, or the focus is mostly just, I'm recording this in April, the focus is mostly just uh, Ukraine. And that's what's happening in April right now. So March and April has all been about uh, Ukraine. And that has kind of taken the place of the pandemic. But by the time you listen to this, maybe there will be, maybe there will be a, a change and then we'll be back to the pandemic and it'll be, you know, so I can see that the door has been opened to, that will allow in the future, um, government and corporations to continue to push that button. Just like when 9-11 happened and terrorism became a thing that we had to worry about. Now the pandemic is something we have to worry about. Whereas before we weren't even, there was no pandemic on our radar. Now there is one. And at any given time they can say, oh, well, it's the, it's the Bromicron, uh, you know, variant. Now we have to, you know, lock ourselves down again and no one will question it. And they've already established that hook. There's a paradigm that's been shifted and they've established that hook. So I'm going to read this essay to you. And uh, before I do that, I want to make sure that you are subscribed to this platform. Why? Because we're dropping incredibly important stuff. Just by the nature of what I'm putting out right here, you can tell why I've already been shadow banned on Instagram. There's a reason why when you type in my name on Instagram, for many people, they won't actually find me. I won't come up because I talk about this stuff. Now, you know, if you've been following me for X amount of years, hundreds of thousands of people follow my account and you know that I put out good shit. You also know that I'm not putting out any like false information. I'm usually just posting what like stats, <laughs> you know, stats, which obviously everyone has their own opinion, but typically I'm just posting objective things or I'm giving my commentary. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm not posting like blatant falsehoods. I'm not, um, I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about the things that are happening right in front of us. I'm talking about economics. I'm talking about the changes that I think should happen. And it's interesting that even in, a, in an era where free speech is touted as being so important, the opposite of that is happening on these platforms. All of that to say, make sure you check in with us at newwaveentrepreneur.com. Why? Because that's where you can get all my email lists. And the email list is something that will always remain uncensored. They can't, they can't stop the direct communication when I know how to get in contact with you. And that's where you're going to hear from me. So make sure you sign up for the email list on newwaveentrepreneur.com. Also, as you know, we're doing uh, the New Wave Dinner Experience, which will be in Austin in June coming up. So make sure that you check that out as well. It's on newwaveentrepreneur.com as well. Sign up for whatever uh, whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's Spotify or iTunes, and subscribe. Leave a comment, leave a review, and I greatly appreciate it. So let's jump into today's episode. Exactly two years ago, we were in the final days of the pre-COVID era, and we had no idea what was about to happen. Humanity had tripped on humerus, and we fell down the colossal rabbit hole that we've been hurtling through ever since, with only brief periods of relief in between screams. Now, my position on all this, as you know, I am not an anti-vaxxer. Uh, I have gratefully taken many vaccines in my life, and I will take more. I believe that modern medicine is one of the great pillars of our human civilization. I've also had one uh, shot. I had the one of the Moderna shots. Um, I just felt, I felt bad. I felt really, really bad afterwards. I felt like shit. I did not get the second one. I know some people don't like to hear that, but that's, but I'm not actually anti-vax though. It just, it's how it worked with this particular, uh, blend, I guess you could say. Now, I am not a non-believer in COVID, obviously. Uh, I know it's absolutely a real virus and it can be deadly and it can also exacerbate existing health conditions. Uh, I've had 
The parents of some people in my network die from COVID. I've had family get sick. Uh, I've seen it totally wipe people out. I know it's no joke. <clears throat> so still though, to keep it 100% with you, I'm ready to stop talking, talking about COVID. And um, I know that it's out there. I do not believe that its existence is a threat to my health or my well-being. And each individual should assess their risk tolerance based on the facts at hand and based on whatever your own personal health profile is. And I also believe that 90% of the concerns around this virus and its treatment is related to the politics of countries and powerful groups and outsized financial incentives, not your health and well-being. And that's what this essay is about. It's not really about arguing whether or not COVID is real or whether you should uh, wear, wear a mask or use a vaccine. Those are all, I think, personal choices, which, you know, come down to where you stand on the philosophical spectrum, perhaps the, the, the health spectrum as well. But what I want to talk about is how the media uses what is a real virus to create a lot of things that aren't real and to create an entirely new thing to thing to to attach to you right so i'm going to take a little quote from from noam chomsky here he wrote this in his uh in his famous piece manufacturing consent and basically noam says it's the primary function of the mass media in the united states to mobilize public support for the special interests that dominate the government and private sector I'll read that again. It's the primary function of the mass media in the United States to mobilize public support for the special interests that dominate the government and private sector. Now, I don't watch local or cable news frequently because it makes me feel like I may need to throw up the entire bag of gluten-free Stacey's pita chips I just ate. The media uses COVID as a vehicle to sell more advertisement, period. And I even, uh, I was at my mom's recently. I just remember watching her TV because she has the news on all day. And the type of language that's used in the news is oftentimes quite fear-mongering. And the ongoing, vaguely numbing fear created by the pandemic is used as a tool to keep consumers plugged into screens of all sizes, waiting for a morsel of relief. All, eyeball, all eyeballs are welcome in this economy. And where your eyeballs look, your attention follows. And attention can be monetized via advertising partnerships, direct sales, and data harvesting. Therefore, capturing eyeballs is the primary business objective of any media conglomerate, okay? You are not the customer, by the way. You are the product. Anytime where you're getting something for free, CNN, Fox, uh, ABC, NBC, MSNBC, ESPN, uh, any, of these, any of these channels where you're getting them for free, I mean, you're paying a cable company maybe, but anywhere where you're getting free content, you are the product, right? Same thing on Facebook and Instagram. You're not the customer. You are the product. The customer are the advertising buyers. So with regard to COVID, some eyeballs are searching for updates on the virus. And this can be, uh, this interest can be capitalized by giving up to the minute updates that keep people anticipating. So if you remember, for instance, if you've ever been uh, through like a, a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake, especially though, man, especially hurricanes, because hurricanes, unlike a lot of different natural disasters, they just they start two weeks out and then they're reporting on it the whole time. And the whole time they're just looking at the track of the hurricane, looking at where it might go, looking at where it might land. And that keeps people glued to the weather channel. And I'm sure the weather channel loves when there's a horrible hurricane ripping towards Florida because they get to talk about it all the time. If the weather is good, it's not that interesting and their advertisement goes down, you know? So other eyeballs though, besides ones that are just looking for up-to-date updates, uh, they want to zone out and watch something to forget the drama. So whereas you might have people who are looking for news, you know, looking for updates, you have people like mine 
who maybe want to forget the drama. And that's why we go on Netflix or Hulu. And either way, media is going to make money because they're making money off me. I'm subscribing to them. And I'll go on another channel, which is entertaining, but also has advertisements. So they're going to get you either way. Now, what exactly do I mean when I say media? Now, anyone who gets paid for buying or selling your attention or data is media. So that includes local and cable news companies, international publishing and media companies, digital ad tech platforms such as Google, Facebook, uh, entertainment media like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. Um, these are, you know, these are all media companies. Multi-billion dollar consumer brands a lot of times are media companies. So if you look at, look at for instance, like, oh, you could look at Apple, for instance, and say, well, there are a lot of things and one of them is a media company. And these types of companies benefit tremendously from anything that keeps you locked in and on the edge of your seat. The more we watch, the more our attention is worth to advertisers. And time spent on the platform or the website or the app or video, whatever it is, is one of the primary ways media companies judge their value. According to Statista, the advertising revenue generated by Facebook worldwide has increased every single year since 2009, from 764 million in, 2000, in 2009 to 84.2 billion in 2020 alone. Now, I just want to note here that the fact that their first year advertising, they made 764 million, <laughs> and that at this point they've grown to 84 billion per year, just, I don't know, it just blows my mind. The numbers just blow my mind, you know? And really what that shows is, really it shows the American public's interest in consuming, essentially, because we wouldn't be, ad buyers wouldn't continue to purchase ads if consumers weren't continuing to buy. So I'm not even really hating on Zuck for that. You know, you can really only create results like that by consistently maximizing for profits above everything. And that's pretty gangster of them in a way, but it's also, it causes a lot of problems down the road. And we're seeing how that's happening. These problems are arising when moral and ethical lines are crossed. Just like, for instance, when the Cambridge Analytica thing happened with Facebook and all these other different types of like moral implications and things that are potentially uh, really, really bad for consumers. Now, Fundamentally, keeping the consumer's attention locked in so that they have a higher probability of buying shit via advertisement is the primary way the pandemic benefits major media, right? If you haven't checked out the documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, and I highly recommend it. There's a lot of great illustrations on the social networking uh, effect that our brain goes through as we deal with social media. And from a purely profit-driven perspective, these companies that run these media outlets look at the data, which is, you know, aka people, and they optimize their content for what performs, not necessarily what's useful or healthy for you. So let's think about like this, like they're going to look and see what types of things make you click and respond and come back to the website, but they're not taking into account what is causing mental health issues for you. They're not taking into account when you're overspending. Now, obviously those, you have responsibility and you have ultimate responsibility in your decisions, but it's pretty hard when we have these devices which are attached to us, which are basically our second brains, and those second brains are running ads. Imagine when VR or not even VR, but AR or even Elon's Neuralink comes into play and we have our computers connected to our brains. Would you want them to run advertisement in your actual brain? I don't think so. Well, if we use our phone, for instance, our, our iPhone as our second brain, which retains so much more information than our actual brain does, or, or at least it feels like it retains so much of the information that we couldn't hold on to, well, it's just as unhealthy sometimes to have those advertisements popping up in our second brain because we spend so much time looking at it. We're spending time looking at that little screen all the time. So think about how much exposure you're getting to that. It's not healthy. And sometimes the media companies need overlap with yours. They need to sell and you really do need that product, but often they do not, you know, but you already knew that, right? Now, 
Here's another thing too, when you're talking about what's popular online, we mistake popularity for truth. Every time we turn our attention to a screen, it's like eating our way through a conveyor belt of bite-sized advertisements disguised as entertainment. We're kind of like data hogs being fattened with ads and slaughtered by Amazon Prime. And we are pestered and prodded to consume nonstop a curated stream of information on a relatively small number of platforms whose main objective is increased profit by way of consumer extraction. And by absorbing this material uh, or by absorbing this commercial information continuously, we reaffirm our position to the worldview it represents. We're either for the popular opinion or we're against it. The key is having an opinion keeps us involved and that's how we stay hooked into the machine. <laughs> Prince just nods. But I mean, think about it. You know, it's like if you're watching something on TV and you're forming an opinion about it, then that opinion keeps you hooked into the story of it. You're either for it or against it, but either way you're engaging with it and that's how they keep you engaged. Because even if you say, I don't agree with this bad thing happening, the fact that you're taking a stance on it keeps you hooked into wanting to argue with it, <laughs> you know? And that's how we stay hooked. And of course, as we're going back and forth on that, they just run ads in between the stuff. You know, Trump stuff, anti-Trump stuff, ad, 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 ad. It's win, win, win for everybody in, who's in the media game. And... um. It's no problem to have an opinion about what's going on in the world. The problem is sometimes we mistake what's popular for what's true. So the worldwide response to COVID has been a great opportunity to observe the effects of mass programming on society in real time. And if you're paying attention, you can see the unhealthy level of fear that's being created by politicians in the press. You can see how that fear creates panic and how that panic is being capitalized on to make money and grab power. Social media exacerbates this issue through media manipulation, and that's nothing new. Now. Let's talk about huge corporations inside of bigger conglomerates. And one of my favorite academics in the areas of communication and economics and linguistics is Noam Chomsky. And this man has written, I think, over 100 books. And he, uh, he is over 100 now. Or he's just getting there. And in 1988, the glorious year of my birth, he published Manufacturing Consent. I highly recommend you check out the, uh, the YouTube summaries of it. It's really good, but read the book if you can. And in the book, he explains that the elite news media, and by the way, this is in 1988. So remember this, this is in 1988. He explains that the elite news media, uh, which is like New York Times, CNN, and local news create the majority of the information that you consume. And these outlets have the ability to determine what's true and what's not. And the New York Times is so highly regarded as a trustworthy outlet that their opinions are often treated as historical fact and their archives are frequently used as a record of events. Let's just, let's just think about that for a minute. They are so trusted that just being documented in the New York Times is often considered a legitimate historical occurrence. So what that means is that a lot of times historians or people who are referring to history won't bother to double check what legacy news media and elite news media like New York Times, CNN, etc., put out because one, they figure, well, these journalists have already done all the research of making sure this is all correct. And two, th what they say has historically been taken as fact, so we're going to continue to take it as fact. And the power to make and shape and shade history is an enormous responsibility if you think about it. And elite media outlets create the framework for national and international news. And this means that they determine what's important enough to pay attention to. The local news takes their talking points from the elite media. 
So if you're looking at local news, they're taking whatever is important that's been said by the elite news and they're they're parsing it down for local plus they're adding some of their local flair to it. And Russell Brand said that people don't trust the media because they know the media are not telling them the truth and the media are relaying a set of principles and ideas that are usually not beneficial to the recipient of the information, but to the media partners who corporately sponsor them. Which, you know, again, people talk about Russell Brand a lot as a conspiracy theorist, but I just heard nothing but facts in that. I didn't hear any type of opinion. It's more like, listen, media companies make money because bigger companies pay them money to advertise in front of you. Therefore, if if Pfizer is a sponsor of, and this is true, CNN, Fox, NBC, ABC, Pfizer sponsors all the major media companies. Wouldn't it be a little bit awkward for these major media companies to completely trash Pfizer if Pfizer is the one giving them most of their money. And did you know, like between 60 and 70% of all media sponsorships, the money comes from pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies spend so much money on creating commercials that it would seem awkward for those same outlets to then report anything that wasn't at least neutral to positive about those companies because that's how it works. If I pay you money and then you trash talk me, I'm not going to pay you any more money. So it just, it's just, it doesn't seem like a conspiracy to me. It seems like a very logical and linear thought process, but hey, that's just me. You know, when you break it down, the elite news media are only a few companies and these companies have an even smaller number of owners. Now the industry is comprised of big corporations inside of even bigger conglomerates. And in the, in the post I did of this, uh, of this podcast, there is a is a really fascinating uh, infographic which shows the hundreds of companies. I mean, maybe even thousands of parent companies and subsidiaries across all the major places that Disney touches and all the major forms of uh, consumer entertainment. I'm not going to read. All, I mean, there's too many to read. You have to look at this. And you got to zoom in. But I mean, you know, everything from film to television to music and radio to gaming to finance to theater consumer goods, properties and parks, you know, which is real estate, publishing, digital, digital and other things. These are all controlled by Disney. And Disney, although it has many departments, at the end of the day, has only so many decision makers at the top. So when you look at the amount of information that these companies are creating, the amount not that they don't create so many good things, but think of all the information they're creating, think of all the perspectives they're creating with their film, for instance, and then think of how many people there are truly making decisions. Yes, there are many layers of decision makers, but at the very top, there's only so many. And would you feel comfortable with, let's say, 20 people making all the decisions about what you should think and feel and, and, and see? Well, maybe not. But there are those people making decisions. And as a result, you do get certain sets of information and you're withheld other sets. Between Disney, NBC Universal, and Time Warner, 80% of the media communication and entertainment of the United States and a large chunk of the world are represented. And that's just three gigantic companies. That's why they're conglomerates, okay? Now, how do conglomerates shape the truth? These conglomerates have a tiny number of decision makers at the top who use their power to create the national and international conversation in the following ways. The first thing is through selection of topics. So they choose what and who deserves media coverage. Even more importantly, they choose what and who does not, quote, deserve media coverage. They also choose the distribution of concerns. So they determine uh, what and whose material to prioritize and where the placement is. 
They also determine what deserves emphasis and repetition, right? The more airtime or call to action, the better. They also determine the framing of issues. They determine if issues of national importance will be framed positively or negatively. They also determine the filtering of information. They determine what information is important for viewers to know and what doesn't need to be mentioned at all. And when you take these factors into account, you will have no choice but to begin looking at the news in a whole different way, right? Now, let's talk about perceived urgency on the part of the news media and these conglomerates in relation to COVID. And I know that, again, we're moving through this COVID pandemic. It's a fluid transition of fear versus not as scared. Depending on where we are on the spectrum right now, you might, feel, you might not feel that there's a lot of urgency to the COVID thing. But think about where we just were and think about where we could possibly go. Now, I have no problem with news covering COVID or reporting relevant public health updates. I have absolutely no problem with people choosing whether or not the vaccine is right for them. However, I am also acutely aware that fear and uncertainty can be used to create perceived urgency. Perceived urgency from an imminent threat is used to lock viewers into a platform and create conformity through fear of collective peril. The better the lock-in, the more media companies can charge to place advertisements in front of viewers. And the more viewers and browsers that are plugged in, the more consumer goods companies can make from their captive attention. You ever notice how three of the five biggest winners during the pandemic deal with information and, and attention? And the other two are certainly, you know, they're up there. They have a stake in it. And I, I show a, a, an infographic here. And it says, it shows the U.S. billionaires gained $1 trillion since the pandemic started from, you know, beginning of 2020 through end of 2021, about two years. And basically, the change in the wealth the U.S. billionaires have seen since the beginning to the end of the pandemic or to where we are now has been phenomenal. Elon Musk uh, had the biggest change. Jeff Bezos, second biggest. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, all there. And I just find it highly, highly interesting. Now. Billionaires are getting fat off that COVID dough. And I'm sure you've heard that there is a huge wealth transfer happening right now. On the one hand, we have tools like DeFi and the crypto space, you know, creating a more level playing field for the next generation. And that's the type of wealth transfer I love to see. On the other hand, a large portion of new wealth being created is flowing up towards the top 1% or to the top 1%. And most of that is going to the top 0.1%. Now, um, as you've seen, U.S. US billionaires are gaining over a trillion dollars collectively since the pandemic. Um, now, what I think is interesting is that as a culture, I believe our media capacity is at an all-time high and still trending up. So meaning that we are, I think that we're getting better and better at putting out media and we're putting out more and more. Now, at the same time, I absolutely believe that media quality by volume is at an all-time low, meaning that we have the, capabil the capability of producing so much and ca capability of producing really good stuff and yet most of what we make is not very good. Uh, it's kind of like, it kind of reminds me of the visual of the, the people in the Matrix who are stuck with the tube down the throat and the little in the little seed pod thing and that like weird machine organic seed pod thing. We're kind of stuck in there, just sucking in these ads and sucking in all this content. And it doesn't really matter where you're, you know, where you, are, where you fall on the spectrum. Media will take advantage of it any, in, in any position, whether it's right or left, red or blue, black or white. They're going to find something that's going to attract your attention. And the immense value of your attention is why left-leaning outlets like CNN, who continuously lambasted Donald Trump, had their best ratings ever while he was in office. Now, I think that creates a real conflict of interest because you have, you know, you have organizations like MSNBC or CNN who would destroy the president, but then they kind of need him because he's the number one talking point, and without him, people don't watch. 
So it just it just makes me realize that the media is less concerned about what's true and more concerned about what you'll keep watching. You know, not that Donald Trump was a good president, you know, not that Joe Biden's really a good president, but what they're doing is trying to find a thing that's going to make you keep watching. And when you look at the quality of the journalism on most national and local outlets these days, there's a lot left to be desired. Um, most of the, quote, coverage that these programs give to nuanced issues are really just like five bullet points repeated over and over again with an emphasis on different things by different guests. You know, so if you look at, for instance, what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Russia, it's like it's the same five bullet points over and over again, basically, but just from different voices. And often with the same, even the, even the same images sometimes flashed on screen. It's really kind of weird. Now, that's that's just the first chunk of this. That's just the first chunk of how the media gets involved with buying and selling your attention. And it's getting you to the point of realizing that if you're getting this media service, you're not the customer. We think of ourselves as consum- as customers, but really, we're really just consumers. The customers are the ad buyers. The ad buyers are the ones that are wanting your attention and they're working together to optimize that with these outlets, and that's what the outlets care about. So it doesn't mean that they never deliver any good news. It doesn't mean that whatever they say is never true. It just means that when it comes to it, their objective is to get you to watch, not to tell you the truth necessarily. And if you understand that as their objective, you'll know that sometimes their interests don't align with yours. And what you can do then is you can just keep watching news sources or news from different sources outlets from different sources to create your own opinion that is more of a panoramic and a composite than a static image. Does that make sense? So my belief too is that COVID-19, why are we still calling it COVID-19 by the way? Jesus, 2022. COVID is the first war of the 2020s and it may not be the last according to people who are smarter than me. You know, if you remember, nations have historically used war as an economic lever. Our three most recent wars haven't been traditional military wars on foreign theaters though. These have been wars of technology, culture, and ideology. Oh boy, you're about to get me hot. I'm about to get get mad on this next piece. I'm drinking water because I'm going to get mad. Listen, the pandemic is a war on a virus. Before that, there was the war on terror. Before that, there was the war on drugs. Uh, And what do all these uh, wars have in common? All three are fighting in response to an existing problem, not the root of, not the root cause of the problem itself, okay? All three created a reason for the United States government to subcontract trillions of dollars of taxpayer money to a select number of influential corporations and individuals. All three took advantage of dominant media outlets to help the government push a strong agenda and execute it through new and more restrictive legislations. All three have no clear beginning or end dates. They're like subscriptions you can't cancel. The war on drugs and terror have both been around for decades. The pandemic just started in 2020 you know, we can see where this is going. It's really kind of gross if you think about it. And when you really look into the dirty details of government spending, your stomach might start to churn because war makes it rain. And a good war is like firing up the money printer. When you consider the fact that the war on drugs has cost taxpayers $9.2 million per day since 1971, and we still haven't won that war yet, by the way, in Oregon, they're losing horribly. Or when you consider the fact that the war in Afghanistan and Iraq cost taxpayers $300 million per day for 20 years. And that stock prices from the top five defense contractors have 10 x in that same time frame. You can't help but wonder if the money that you're being morally, ethically, and legally forced to contribute in the form of taxes is actually going into the betterment of your country and community.
You hope everything is being accounted for properly, since we're all one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. But let's ask one question everyone wants to know. Where the hell did all the money go? There's one of my favorite scenes in Breaking Bad. It is. It really is a great, great character scene from um, from from Walt Brian Cranston. He is on the verge of getting uh, killed by a horrible drug dealer, and the only way he's going to get out of it is if he's able to come up with like a million dollars cash in the next day, and his whole or his whole family is going to get wiped out. Him and his whole family. And he knows that he's made a stash uh, under the floorboards in his house. And he goes and he he goes into his house. He breaks into it. He pries open the floorboard and he digs for the stash. And his money is not there. And he goes, he goes to his wife. He goes, Skylar, where's the money? And she'd given it to her lover. She'd given it to her boyfriend that she had on the side. And he goes, where's the money, Skylar? And he's under the house screaming. And he's then he starts to laugh. He starts to laugh maniacally. He starts to just cackle. And I thought it was just amazing acting because that's in that moment, Brian Cranston broke. Well, really, really, who's his character? Fucking Walter. Walter White broke. He snapped. He was, it was so terrifying that he was, it was hilarious to him. But anyway, I thought, I felt like that about the government spending. Like, where's the money? You know, when you read that the Pentagon has a $35 trillion accounting black hole that was uncovered after an internal audit yet somehow still remains unaccounted for, you're really going to get scared. By the way, the fact that these are internal audits always just, my, my, when I read it, my brain doesn't compute because they certainly don't let me do an internal audit and determine how much I'm going to pay. They want to make sure that it's accurate. And yet the government's allowed to audit itself and then self-report and do whatever it wants based on its findings of itself. <laughs> right? When you read that the government has already spent three and a half trillion dollars in response to COVID, which are the vaccines, which aren't free. And by the way, I believe this is accurate. I saw that Biden's build back better thing, which they always have these great acronyms for. They always have these great little uh, little um, acronyms or these uh, these abbreviations or these things that are alliteration. Build back better, you know, no child left behind. You know, all these great little phrases and, you know, build back better is gonna cost us like, I think like three to six trillion dollars. We're not even doing things in the billions anymore. It's trillions now. And it's like, who's signing off on that? It seems like they just pull these numbers out of their ass. It's just like, oh, how much is it going to cost? I don't know, three to six trillion. And then they sign off on it. And then where's all the money go? Guys, the money goes to just random consultants. It goes to people who are contractors. It goes to just just into funds and into, into just random businesses that are connected to oftentimes people in Congress. Or when you look at, for instance, what happened with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and we saw that Dick Cheney, the, the vice president, or Donald Rumsfeld, the secretary of defense, had direct connections to th places like Blackwater, you know, which are, which by the way, would you ever invest in a company called Blackwater? That just sounds like a scary fucking company. But they do, they were financing things for the war. And then it would be things like, oh, well, you know, uh, the soldiers need paper plates and plastic plates. So, you know, my company, which works for, you know, government contractors is going to supply $20 million in styrofoam plates. But then it's like, no one checks that stuff. It's just 
The check just gets signed and sent away. There's nepotism involved. There's favoritism involved. There's cheating involved. There's stealing involved. I have a friend who was a special operator in uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan who would fly. Sometimes he would be flying the actual drone drones and bombing things. Other times he was on the ground uh, working in the command center. And he told me that oftentimes they the the um, how can I say this? They would take bricks of cash to the Taliban in order to get safe passage through different areas of Afghanistan. What that meant was that essentially they were coordinating when the attacks were going to happen. The Taliban knew oftentimes that the American government needed to roll through a certain area of the desert. So they would pay the Taliban in these bricks of pure $100 bill cash, gigantic truckloads of cash, so that they would have a better chance of getting through because they didn't want to get mined by these by these these explosive devices, these these what is the EDs? Uh, IEDs. Yes, by these IEDs, they didn't want to get bombed, so the Taliban would allow them safe passage. And oftentimes, what would happen is they would pay off the Taliban, and then the gov the the troops would then make a strike on a target that the Taliban had already okayed them to make the strike on, and then the troops would then report back, "We made our strike." After then paying to for safe passage, and that's your tax money. So I just don't know what to say about it. You know, as you can see, you know, there's a lot of inside baseball being played with stock markets and the way things are being regulated. Just look at Nancy Pelosi and all that stuff that's coming up for her about the different uh, trades that she's made and that which are which are uh, have a scary resemblance to the things that are happening in the actual market and the fact that she has millions and millions of dollars and it's not just her, it's not just her by the way it's all of Congress and um, so it's really scary to see the collusion between. The military-industrial complex, stock market, government officials, and you know other politicians—it's pretty scary. When you look at all the stuff, the light bulb starts to go on. Just start reading. You know, it did for me at least. And members of the elite profit off of catastrophe and take advantage of the system whenever possible. You know, in fact, the system is designed to let them do so. It's almost like if you have a flesh-eating zombie, don't get mad that it's eating people's flesh. It's designed to do that. Don't get mad that people in the political process are taking advantage of the political process because they designed it to let themselves do that. <laughs> it's, you're only mad because you didn't know that that was a thing. Hey, this is Daniel. Thank you so much for listening to the New Wave Podcast. We're gonna get you right back to the show, but I wanted to tell you about this new mixtape that I just dropped. That's right, I dropped a mixtape and it's called Power Packs. So I know you are listening to this podcast and many others because you want to improve your life, you want to build your business, and you want to live well, and me too. And you know what I've discovered over the years? It's that even though I've learned from many mentors and teachers, the best mentor in my life has been, drumroll, myself. That's right, and, and I know it's the same for you. It just has to be because the truth is you can mentor yourself and you already have the answers to your own problems. What you need are the right questions to ask to spark your problem-solving machine. You have a creative genius for solving problems, but you have to ask yourself the right questions, and Power Packs will help you to do that. This is a five-volume audio series designed to dramatically improve the quality of your life and business in just a single listen, but not because it contains any answers, because it asks you the actual questions you need to know to get your brain pumping. And in these five volumes, we cover, the first volume is all about success and, and business and money. The second one is generating mental and physical health. The third one is all about strengthening your most valuable relationships. The fourth one is about unlocking your hidden creative genius. And the fifth one is all about thinking and being strategic. And these volumes are all available for free. Now, we've just released the first one. So if you want to learn about success with business and money, and you want to actually ask yourself the right questions to get you closer 
to successful outcomes there, then just go and download it. You can go to Spotify and get it, or you can go to newwaveentrepreneur.com, where you're already probably spending a good amount of time, and you can download it for free uh, right there. And you'll also get an outline of all the questions that I ask in that pack and my notes to help you move even faster through your business and your life goals. Now, we're also going to do a limited edition merch run and some other bonuses to celebrate the launch of this series, so make sure you check it out at newwaveentrepreneur.com. And of course, you can stream it for free and download everything for free. Much love. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to the show. Download Power Packs now. Let's get back to the episode. Right? Now, the problems of all of this stuff are systemic. COVID exposed and exacerbated a systemic weakness in American healthcare and a lot of other systems, and it rattled our smug approach to what I would believe is more of, we think, medicine over wellness in our country. And I believe that we'd all rather numb a pain than address the source of it, or many of us would rather numb a pain than address the source of it. And I believe uh, that we'd want to feel healthy, but a lot of times we're not concerned with actually being healthy. And I believe that the traditional American healthcare system is quick to recommend a prescription drug for any symptom that you might have because there are multiple parties who get a cut of the dough for every pill you swallow. And billions have already been spent on the rollout of the COVID vaccine. And that contract is guaranteed money between the federal government and big pharma like Pfizer or Moderna. And first, they use taxpayer money to subsidize the research and development of the COVID vaccine. Then they charge you exorbitant rates to purchase the drug you just literally paid to develop. Now, when I say exorbitant rates, I mean it's coming out of your own. It's going to come out of your pocket, not only from them paying for the development of the drug, but also as they continue to develop designer versions of that drug, um, like they're developing different pills for COVID now. The shots were free, but all the different drugs that are being developed from the COVID vaccine as a result of all the money that we're paying in are being sold back to us at exorbitant prices. For instance, there's a new there's a new uh, COVID pill, which is going to cost like seven times the amount that it should cost just because there's greed, man. And after an exclusive period uh, in which uh, government has the rights to the patent, a company like Pfizer can go back into the market and they can sell that vaccine to whoever wants to purchase it using all the R&D money you were forced to give them via taxes plus all the money you just overpaid to get vaccinated yourself. And it's a loop that has you on receiving end of the bill twice. Now, not to mention the fact that these huge pharmaceutical companies have zero liability to keep you alive. I want you to listen to this carefully. Under the PREP Act, companies like Pfizer and Moderna have total immunity, how ironic, from liability if something unintentionally goes wrong with their vaccines. A little-known government program provides benefits to people who can prove they suffered serious injuries from a vaccine, and that policy or that program rarely pays, covering just 29 claims over the last decade. And if that's not a yikes, I don't know what is. Now, hopefully this pandemic has forced us to confront the fact that we are largely out of shape as a population, and the highest comorbidities from COVID uh, were related to lifestyle. And if you look, there are some really good research studies that I put in the text version of this, which include some PubMed research that shows that cardiovascular disease, chronic obstruct obstructive pulmonary disease, and diabetes are the three main comorbidities. It doesn't mean that it can't be deadly or very damaging if you don't have those, but it's just an example of the fact that what is happening is we're addressing a symptom, not necessarily a cause. Yes, COVID is its own thing, but what it's exacerbating and showing is that we have some systemic and some symptomic uh, problems of our overall health as a society, and this virus is causing that to have a worse reaction than we might if we were overall healthy as a population. Now, in reality, the best method for staying healthy from COVID-19 is to keep your body 
in mind as healthy as possible year-round. Diet, exercise, and lifestyle needs to be on point. And the vaccine should be looked at as an optional bonus, not the deciding factor between living and dying. Full stop. If, if that's the only way of protecting yourself just with the vaccine, if that's the, way you, the only way you can think of doing it, then you're missing the whole first part, which is taking care of your physical body. And just so you know, the companies don't really care about your health. The main thing you need to remember is that the government doesn't care about you individually, and they never have. They care exclusively about maintaining the power and authority of themselves and the small group of stakeholders they represent. Now, I know this is hard to maybe sometimes wrap your head around because maybe you were brought up in a, in a, a house or in a country, in a world where you felt like the government officials really did care for you. And I know that when I would speak to my, my grandmother or people who are older in my family, they spoke about, for instance, let's just, say, let's just say the president as someone they really respected and someone who they thought had the best interests of them and the country uh, in mind. And I do think that there are individually great politicians out there who really want the best. I think especially at the local level, but even at the national level, I do believe people get into politics to help. Just like some soldiers get into the war to help. But I think that the way that the system is set up, once you get in there, you can't really do what you feel is important for you based on your uh, values. You have to do what's valuable for the pack. And the pack optimizes for money and control. Most of the messaging we get from the government isn't about your overall wellness in this situation. It's about directing you to take a specific action, which is to get vaccinated. Now, let's not initially forget, let's not forget that there was a certain time when, when he was running, when Biden said he would not make vaccines mandatory. And then he kind of ended up doubling back and, and rolling, kind of rolling out national mandates. And there was, there's a lot of argument around that. And I think that if you like to get vaccinated, I think you should. I don't have any qualms with it. My main problem here is that the scope of power to impose authority creeps up and up over time and never recedes. Basically, I, I feel that whenever an authority assumes a higher level of control over a population in a quote emergency situation, they never really give it up. They're never really give it up willingly. And then they also will frequently create emergencies to create control, or they'll exaggerate emergencies to create control. For instance, because of 9-11, we see how different our plane travel experience is. I don't think it's really necessary to do all the body cavity searching that they do on the planes. I don't think it's really necessary to scan our toothpaste and not allow us to take our mouthwash in the large container on the plane. I think our technology is good enough where we can determine if that's toothpaste or a bomb. I think that we can get through security a lot faster. You know, all of these things. I think that maybe we don't need to have our phone lines listened to. These are all things that partially in response to 9-11 started and have never stopped. And Julius Caesar, just like he would not willingly relinquish his empire, well, neither will anyone else. Power is never vacated easily. The point I tried to make there is that they had to kill Julius Caesar. And power is something that has to be usually taken from someone. It's never willingly given up. And we've seen this before. You know, just like I talked about with 9-11, the Patriot Act and all the ID requirements that have gotten more annoying over time. Um, I guess one thing to talk about, too, is just emergency, re emergency measures and how they how they stay um, tight and only increase, even though the messaging doesn't really uh, report that from the government. And this is from Reuters right here. Uh, Reuters quotes that evidence that the NSA was secretly building a vast database of US telephone records, the who, the how, and the when, and the where of millions of mobile cells and mobile calls was the first and arguably the most explosive of the Snowden revelations published by the Guardian newspaper in 2013. So you guys know about Edward Snowden and his whistleblowing. Up until that moment, top intelligence officials publicly insisted the NSA never knowingly collected information on Americans at all. 
After the program's exposure, U.S. officials fell back on the argument uh, and, and uh, that the spying had played a crucial role in fighting domestic extremism, citing in particular the case of four San Diego residents who were accused of providing aid to religious fanatics in Somalia. So hold on, hold on, let me get this straight. First, they said, we're definitely not spying on you. And then when it was found out, you know, basically, inarguably, that they were spying, they said, well, okay, we were spying, but only to prevent domestic terrorism. See, look at these, or domestic extremism. See, look at these four San Diego residents who provided some religious aid to somebody in Somalia. That's why we're doing it. <laughs> like, am I the only one snorting the chocolate nose out of my milk? <laughs> or snorting the chocolate, the chocolate milk out of my nose here? Uh, I think it's hilariously ironic and highly suspect that for all its invasive reach, the Patriot Act somehow couldn't stop their own American patriots on January 6, uh, 2021 from storming the Capitol when they were literally committing domestic terrorism. And yet the whole reason why they have these systems is to prevent domestic terrorism. <laughs> like, what are we even paying for? You know, and it's just, I think it's hilarious. Even when you look at the way that they treated the, the UFO situation, you can see that within the past few years, the government has over a few different occasions admitted the fact that we have found and potentially even recovered some pieces of UFOs. And they don't call them UFOs, though. They call them, what do they call them? Uh, unidentified flying crafts or something like this. They they call them something, something, something slightly different from UFOs, but they have video footage of them now. And after decades, now they're saying, oh, well, yeah, I guess we do have some UFOs. It's like for years they're saying, nope, 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 nope. So they were gaslighting us the whole time. Same thing with the... Spying on us, same thing with how they're using the budget. So it's like, how can you really trust what's being said? So this is a very long podcast to digest. It's a lot of information. What I want you to do is I want you to leave with these questions. And, you know, I can go on and on about this stuff. First, considering the facts of national or historical significance, and considering that they set political and cultural precedent, the first question I want you to, to ponder for yourself is, what dangerous precedents are being set now by this war on COVID, by the by the distraction about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. We could have done the entire uh, episode, by the way, and just inserted the words Russia and Ukraine, and that would have taken the place of COVID because the media is being used the same way, right? So that's the first question. What dangerous precedents are being set now by the war on COVID that could lead to long-lasting or permanent loss of rights? Second question I would ask you, I'm just throwing stuff at you I'm like a professor now. What role do you feel the media and advertisement industry play in the perpetuation of pandemic fears or other or war fears? Who are the primary benefactors from the response to COVID or Russia or anything else? And who are the stakeholders? And lastly, can you imagine a society 20 years in the future that is still dealing with something like COVID? And is that society one you'd want to live in? I'd like to hear from you. You can email me, daniel at newwaveentrepreneur.com. You can leave a comment where this episode is posted. Make sure that you leave a comment and a review on whatever uh, uh, channel you're listening to this on, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Pandora, iHeartRadio, all that type of stuff. Go to the newwaveentrepreneur.com to hear everything we have working for you. Join our Discord. Join our email list. The water is warm. The tide is rising. Let's jump on in and surf this new wave. Daniel.